Well, um, it is so good to be with you guys. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember me. Uh, my name is Luke Lazan, and it's, uh, it's such an honor to be here with you and to see some familiar faces. Y'all feel free to take a seat. It's, uh, it's so great to see you guys and to see familiar faces that I love and adore, and I don't even need to ask you if that feeling is reciprocated. I just know that it is, right? Uh, so it's just such an honor, and uh, obviously, you know, being here with you guys today is, is a little different. I wish that I were here under somewhat different circumstances, right? It's been a, it's been a really difficult time here at Three Life Church over the past few weeks, in particular for the Rye family, and um, we just want you guys to know, my wife Lindsay and I, that when you guys hurt, we hurt, and that when you cry, we cry, and that nobody is enduring this alone, nobody's praying through this on their own, and so to you guys as a church body, and really to the Rye family in particular, we just want you guys to know that it's an honor to be able to come in here alongside you and stand with you in the midst of hurt, knowing that this is not all that God has for you, that we have hope on the other side of death, that there is more. And I, I think I speak for most of us when I say that the majority of us have probably known that unfortunate feeling of losing someone close to us. And Lindsay and I, we don't pretend to feel Jesse's absence like the Rye family does, but I can tell you what we do feel, the hope and the joy that we have in knowing that she's with Jesus Christ right now. And we rejoice with you guys in that. It's such a beautiful thing to be able to be here with you today. And so, uh, you know, given, given the circumstances, I almost came in here today to preach a message on pain. And then I was like, you know what? We have enough messages going around on pain. Like, we need messages on pain. We need messages on suffering. But sometimes I just feel like we talk more about the trouble that we face along the path of life than we do about what we're walking towards in this life. And so I, I, I don't want to talk about pain today. Can we talk about hope? Can we talk about hope this morning? I, um, I think even in the midst of our pain, the best thing that we can do is acknowledge that the hell that we feel like we're going through isn't greater than the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so I want to I want to read today from the book of Romans. If you have your Bible on you, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4 in verses 18 through 24. And if you don't have a Bible on you, no need to panic. We've got two massive Bibles on either side of us right here where we're going to have these verses. And I want to preach a message today that I've called, And Yet. And Yet. And people could easily, and I would understand if you're like this, be like, why? Like, that's a weird title for a message. Why would you call something and yet? And it's because that word yet is a word of hope. Yet is a word of hope. Because let me ask you this, is your life perfect? No, it's not. And yet your life is worth living. Has it been a tough week here at Three Life Church? Uh, yeah, it has been. And yet we're here persevering. I don't know about you guys, but have some of you come in here today feeling a little bit discouraged and like things have been a little bit off in your life? I know I have. And yet, here we are with the hope of the gospel in front of us. And so we're gathering. And I want to read Romans chapter 4, verse 18, starting there. If you're not there, no need to panic. Again, we got the verses up here and just follow along with me. This is what it says. It says, against all hope, 
Three Life Church in hope believed. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, not for Abraham alone, not for anyone in the past and them alone, but for you and I also, for us also, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Will you guys pray with me really quickly before we jump into all that God has for us this morning? Well, God, I just, um, I thank you for the hope that we have in you, God, in the, in the cross. Lord, there's so much that's gone, that's gone on in this, in this church, in the life of the Rye family, in, in us individually, and we don't, we don't try to compare our pain. Lord, if someone had their finger cut off, I'm not going to compare it to me if my arm got cut off. Lord, we all, we experience pain in different ways, and it doesn't matter how big or how small it hurts. And God, we feel like we've had some major hurts, some major punches thrown our way here recently. And so, Lord, we just want to give them to you in this moment and say, God, do something that only you can do, not something that even I can say is going to fix things, Lord. I just pray that your words, that the word that you gave us is the comfort to our hearts and our souls today, that you would do something supernatural and amazing, that we would leave here rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God and saying, wow, look at what you did, Lord in the midst of brokenness. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1975, American jazz piano player Keith Jarrett was doing a tour across Europe. And so on his tour across Europe, one of the stops that he had to make was at the Cologne Opera House in Germany. That's one of the venues where he was playing. And the young concert promoter that happened to be working there at that time was one of the youngest concert promoters in all of Europe. Her name was Vera Brandis, and she was a 17-year-old jazz fanatic who was planning on having 1,400 people come and watch Keith Jarrett play this concert. Well, the thing you got to know about Keith Jarrett is he was an obsessive perfectionist. And he, he's very sensitive to the quality of the pianos that he was playing. He wants things to be perfect because like any perfectionist, that's what they want. They want things to be perfect. And so he had requested from Vera Brandis and the Cologne Opera House that he have a specific, a very specific grand piano to play in front of this live audience. Well, he was kind of about to be in for the shock of his life because when Keith and his manager pulled up and, and they met Vera Brandis and they went to the venue and they were checking things out, they're like looking at the venue like, this will work, this is great, this is amazing. Uh, I, I think we're gonna really have a great show here tonight. Well, all of a sudden they wheeled out the piano and things started to really go south 
from that moment because it was not the piano that Keith Jarrett had requested. In fact, it was not even a grand piano, but it was a baby grand piano that they had used in rehearsals. And so he starts looking at the piano and like the black notes don't work. The pedals are kind of sticking as he's trying to see what's happening there. It's making awful noises. And to make things worse, Keith Jarrett himself was not in the best shape. He was dealing with severe back pain. He and his manager had driven all day from a concert that they had to do the night before. And so Keith Jarrett and his manager and this whole team, they're running on little sleep, little health, and they don't even have a good piano. They're working with a trash piano here. And so Keith Jarrett goes to this young 17-year-old girl, which you got to imagine how you would feel at that age. And he's like, hey, I know uh, that you've planned for this unbelievable event and stuff, uh, but I got to tell you something. There's not a snowball's chance in hell that I'm playing this piano, okay? Like, this is, this is awful. And she was like, she starts to panic. She's like, oh my gosh, I, like, we, we have 1,400 people coming. Like, are you kidding me right now? You're not going to play this? And so she's like, I got, I got to find someone. She's looking for someone, realizes, oh my gosh, I can't get the piano he needs here in time for the concert tonight. So she calls in a piano tuner, and the piano tuner comes in and is like, yeah, I don't know, like, I don't know what you were thinking. Like, this thing is not going to play at all. And so she just says to Keith Jarrett, I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm a 17-year-old girl, but, but you need to play this concert. 1,400 people are showing up to this thing. And so Keith Jarrett... He took pity on her and he said, all right, I will do this. But remember, I'm doing this for you. And so he didn't go on until 1130 that night. And he went on with a back brace for the pain that he was feeling in his back. But he played his heart out. The piano was so small that he was playing that in order to get the volume to fill this room with 1,400 people, he was standing up and pounding on the keys. And then he would have to sit down, and as he was playing different keys, he would have to avoid the broken ones. And he ended up playing a historic performance. It was so historic, actually, that not only was it one of the greatest individual performances in the history of music, it went on to not only be the greatest solo jazz album as far as sales all time, it also went on to be the greatest best-selling piano album of all time. Now, now why, why tell you that? Because it's like, all right, uh, Luke, so 40 years ago, something bad happened in Germany on a piano. What's that have to do with Romans today? And I tell you that story because against all hope, it is in hope that Vera Brandis and Keith Jarrett believed this night could be something other than a complete and total disaster. But from the outside looking in, they had no reason to believe that. There was seemingly no hope that the concert would be anything short of a train wreck, let alone one of the greatest performances in the history of music and a best-selling album in multiple categories. We have a broken piano, right? Like the piano was broken, their preparation was broken, and the piano player was broken by himself. And yet, we got a theme rolling here, people, and yet... Through hopeless circumstances, something miraculous took place. Now, what's even crazier than that to me is you have to think about this. And this is the part that really messes with us. If they had provided Keith Jarrett with a piano that was exactly as he requested, he would not have played the way that he played and he would not have seen the success that he's had seen. 
He played the way that he played, and he has seen the success that he has seen, not in spite of those hopeless circumstances, right? But because he had to cling to hope in the midst of those hopeless circumstances, it was because of the circumstance that he has seen the success he's seen and that he played the way that he played. And some of you, as you come in here today, you feel like you're in a pretty similar position, Everything around you is screaming that things are hopeless. I mean, you've been a part of what's going on at this church, and you're just like, I don't, how can Jamie get up here and say what he's saying? How how is it possible that we can go through the things that we're going through? And maybe nobody in your life has passed recently, but maybe nobody knows, and, and you've been fighting a battle privately that's made you feel hopeless, and you haven't had anybody come up to you and ask, and so you're just dealing with it on your own. Maybe you feel like you're stuck. You feel like God was with you in all these seasons prior in your life, but you've come to this moment and it just feels like God kind of dropped you off and it's like, where'd he go? Or maybe for you, you are dealing with some sort of health crisis or maybe for you, it's, it's a lot more simple than that. If you're being honest, it's like, I don't have anything crazy going on in my life, Luke, but I feel really discouraged in this season of my life. But I, I got to tell you something that I, I came here on an assignment today to tell you that the hopelessness that you feel in your circumstances is not greater than the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. When we cling to hope in the midst of hopeless circumstances, that is where God does some of his greatest forging and refining work in our faith. Abraham would tell you the same thing. He and his wife, Sarah, they couldn't have children because Sarah's womb was barren. And yet... God promised them, you are going to have children. You are going to have a son. He even says to Abraham, hey, Abraham, uh, while I'm telling you this promise, um, why don't you just come on outside and count the stars? Those are your descendants. If you can count the stars, you can count your descendants. And so finally, it takes a minute. When Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, they end up having their firstborn son. And Guys, I mean, you know how that is. Like, I'm sure Abraham got really sick of Sarah asking if they could keep trying for kids, you know? (laughs) Like, I'm sure he was like, honey, I'm tired. I can't tonight, you know? Like, let's not do this right now. But look at what it says in Romans 4. In those first few verses we, we read, it said, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. So, so you got you to gotta recognize when it says against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. What, what does that mean? It just feels like it, it just kind of feels like they kind of cross each other out, don't they? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Is that just like biblical speak that I'm not going to understand? But what, what it's saying is that Abraham and Sarah, they could not hope to conceive on their own. So against all hope in a natural way of having children and becoming pregnant, they had to believe in the supernatural promise that God had given them that they would become pregnant. And it says in verse 19 that Abraham was aware that his body was as good as dead and that, you know, Sarah wasn't looking so good herself. And so what happened? He can't say that to her, but they said it in the scripture. So everything's fair game if it's in the scripture. And it says that His faith didn't weaken. And I love that. It says his faith didn't weaken. Why? Because his hope was built on the promise of God's word. 
When your hope is built on the promise of God's word, that hope is simultaneously setting up barricades to the worries of your circumstances. Abraham could have easily got stuck going through those rational checklists that we all do, right? Like we all do this. You look at a circumstance and you have the word of God in front of you and you go, all right, this is what God has to say, but let me just like whip out my rational checklist and be like, all right, is uh, Sarah 90? Yeah, she is. Uh, is her womb barren? Has, has always been. Uh, am I 100? Yeah. Are we going to have this baby? But Abraham wasn't banking on that. His hope was in the promise of God's word. And the promise of God's word gave him a rational reason to believe in something that his circumstances were screaming are irrational. Right. Now, now let me pause here for a moment because this is where I lose some of you. Because some of you came in here today and, and it's just like, you, you know, this is where I get frustrated with the preacher and church and stuff, okay? Because I come in here today and I'm like, great. I, like, like I came to listen to this preacher and to worship and and so we're talking about this guy with irrational faith, and it's like, I mean, I'm struggling to feel like God even likes me. We're not even going to, like, touch the kitty end of the pool, huh? We're just going to jump right into the deep end, talking about believing for babies when we're about to bury you with our hip replacements and everything. Like, that, that's really, like, this is ridiculous. But let me encourage you with this. When it says that Abraham's faith did not weaken, it doesn't mean that Abraham never for a single solitary second ever had a single little bit of doubt. When it says that, his faith didn't weaken. You have to look at what happens in that Genesis account. It says in Genesis 15 that God gave him this promise. You're going to have a son. But look at what happens just a few chapters later in Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless Sarah and will surely give you a son by her. That's pretty, that's pretty clear. There's not a lot of like interpretation that has to go on there. He doesn't only say that. Then he says, I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings will come from her. And look at how Abraham responds. It says, Abraham fell face down and he laughed and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? I mean, is my wife Sarah going to bear a child at the age of 90? That doesn't sound like a man who had flawless faith. He, he definitely had moments in his life where he questioned, is this really going to happen? When it says he never weakened in his faith, this is one of those difficult things when we're trying to translate Greek to English, right? Like there's nuance in those words. When it says that his faith never weakened, it doesn't mean that he never had a weak moment. It is okay to have weak moments in your faith. God expects it. It's a part of your humanity. But what that does mean is that despite the hopeless circumstances that Abraham faced, he never allowed the hopelessness of a circumstance to permanently keep him down. He had to get back up and doubt his doubts and hold close to the promise of God's word. You know, um, I'm not a tree hugger, okay? Uh, but I'm not a tree hater either, all right? I feel like you're kind of one or the other. People have like strong opinions on this. But I was watching this thing the other day about giant sequoia trees. We're going somewhere, nobody panic, okay? Uh, but have you heard about these trees? This is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. So I'm watching this thing on giant sequoia trees and they're the largest trees in the world. Not necessarily the tallest, although they're not short. They get up to like 300 feet tall and they live for over 3,000 years, and they're the largest trees in the world. Like, Google this stuff. And 
It's insane. Like they live so long and they get so huge, but none of that is what blew my mind about these trees. What blew my mind is how they grow. And so I'm, I'm telling you, I had to rewind this like four times just to make sure I wasn't going to get up here. And then one of you people that's like a stickler on the guy that's preaching was going to be like, I'm going to go make sure that he didn't screw that up because that doesn't sound right. I rewatched this like 500 times. And so as I'm watching this, the guy says this. This is a quote from him. He says, without fire, without fire, giant sequoia trees cannot grow or reproduce. And I was like, wait, okay, all right, um, li listen, um, I'm, I don't profess to be an expert on a lot. I would actually say I'm not an expert on pretty much anything. But I will say, uh, I feel pretty strong that fire and trees aren't like a good collision, particularly for the tree. Uh, and, and I don't, uh, maybe I'm crazy, but I just, I don't know. And so I was like, I, I got to keep watching this. I mean, like, okay, so how do you make trees grow? I'm like, you know what, the best thing for that tree a bonfire. I think that'd be best. But this is what the guy said. He, he goes on and he says, giant sequoia trees really are born of fire. It gives them three things they need for regeneration. First, it punches a hole in the forest that gives them more light and more water for the sequoia seedlings. The second thing that it does is it heats the cones in the giant sequoia trees that are mature without harming the trees. That opens up the cones in the trees and there's a rain of seeds on the ground. The final thing that it does is it clears away all the leaves that build up because giant sequoia trees need to hit bare mineral soil so they can germinate and survive well. And then he says for good measure, he said, and the best part for them is that winter storms come in shortly after that, bury those seeds in a blanket of snow, which then turns into water, which gives them ideal conditions. Because then comes spring, it's warmer, it's wet from the snow, and they've been born from the ashes. Wow. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, this is the hope of the gospel. I mean, to anyone on the outside looking in on this situation, if you saw a tree with, that had fire around it, you would go, oh my gosh, this is terrible. And yet, it is through that very fire that the tree is able to create new life that will thrive. And the same is true of believers. Walking with God does not mean that now all of a sudden our lives are going to be stripped of all inconveniences and trials. God isn't interested in making you a fair weather fan of the gospel who just runs whenever anything in life gets rough. He wants you to be a sold out follower of the kingdom of God carrying your cross daily so that you can understand the trials of life are not meant to take you out of the fight. They're meant to take you deeper in your faith in him. That when the world sees us going through extreme conditions, right? And they see a fire in the midst of the forest of our faith and they go, yeah, that one's going to make them a little bit different than they were previously. Uh, yeah, they're right. It, it is going to make us a little bit different. But, but here's the thing. It's not because God is using the fires to burn us down. He's using them to build us up. It is not the absence of extreme conditions that show how great our faith is, but it is actually in those extreme conditions that our faith is forged. 
We can keep our peace and our hope in the middle of pain and seemingly hopeless circumstances because the peace and the hope of the Holy Spirit dwelling in me is greater than the hopeless circumstances that are surrounding me. See, my hope doesn't just work when things are going okay in my life. It works when things aren't going okay because what the world doesn't know is that my hope hung on a cross. It was buried and he still lives today. You see, Abraham, though, he finds himself in a moment of uncertainty. And I know that we all in here do, too, even if we don't like to talk about it. And the reasonable question in the middle of uncertainty is, why, God? <laughs> are, are you serious? Like, why, Lord, is this happening? I, I just don't, I don't get it. What are you doing? But when we feel forced to cling to hope, in the middle of seemingly hopeless circumstances, that's where we find that God's character is always going to remain true and that his promises are true. And it's through that trust that we build up that that brings him glory. In verse 19, it says, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and that Sarah, you know, wasn't far behind. But look at what it says in verse 20. It says, and yet, yeah. and yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Do you see that though? As time passed, Abraham's faith in God strengthened. Why? Because the more time that Abraham spent with God, the more faith he had in God. Hello. Come on. Is there not a lesson for us to learn in this? That as his faith or as his weight on God's timing went longer, his faith in God's promises went deeper. That trust brought glory to God. When the weight went longer than he thought it was going to go, it didn't make him less certain that God was going to do what he said he would do. In fact, it made him more certain in God's power that he would do what he said he would do. That the promise was always sure. I think most of us struggle more with God's timing than his testing. I think most of us struggle with God's timing more than we do his testing. When someone dies young, we don't get that. It doesn't make sense. Right. We struggle with, I, God, I feel like you gave me a promise and it has, it's, been, it's been three years. What's, to, what's going on? I don't even feel like I've moved an inch towards seeing that promise come true. I mean, even those of you with kids, like you understand this, like we understand that the struggle makes us strong. Like you, if you want your kid to walk, you can't carry him everywhere. Otherwise, they're never going to be able to crawl. They're never going to get the strength in their legs in order to be able to stand and walk towards you. And then if you don't want that kid to be a complete and total brat, then you can't just give them everything in life. You know, maybe they should like work to earn a dollar or something crazy. I know. But like maybe they should do something a little tough before they just end up asking for everything and expect that, right? We understand that as we read the scriptures, that God's testing of faith was a way to reveal the strength of someone's faith, to reveal, are they going to unravel under the pressures of life? Or are they going to have that unshakable hope and confidence in who God is? But we struggle more with why things take so long rather than the things that we actually have to go through. Because here's the thing, we'll come to find out that God is typically stubborn in his timing because we're typically shallow in our trusting. 
God loves us too much. He loves you way too much to allow you to be shaky ground and have no trust in Him. He wants our trust and our hope in Him to be completely and totally solidified. That's where Abraham had to get. And that's where God wants us to go, to have total trust and be full of hope in Him. I saw this video recently, I don't know if you guys have, have seen this video, but I, I saw it and it, it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen after I read about it in the USA Today. What, what is that, a newspaper? I'm a millennial, like Twitter's my newspaper, but it read it in USA Today. And it's crazy, there's this video that was circulating this summer and this Boston Orchestra was performing a, a concert, I think early, early May, and as they're performing this concert, they're kind of coming to the very end of it, the very last song at the tail end of the performance. And in this video, you can hear it very, very clearly that as it's, it's winding down and they're kind of like taking their like bows off whatever they're, they're playing. I don't, I don't know instruments, but as they're wrapping up and they're just like feeling the repose of like, what a great show. You can hear this kid in the background. You can tell it's a kid. He just goes, Wow. And you know, at like an orchestra, it's like, whoa, dude, like you're not supposed to say anything at orchestras. There's like a stereotype on, on classical music and like the people that attend it, like they're, they're not very fun at parties, they're very uptight. And so it's funny, like you wait and everyone's kind of just like, just waiting to see how everyone reacts, but they just pause for a minute and then they start laughing and clapping. Well, so this video goes viral, it is everywhere. And people want to know, who is this mystery kid? Who is this kid that screamed wow at the performance? Because even the guy who leads the orchestra was like, I want to know who that kid is. That's the greatest thing I've ever seen in 40 years of doing this. And so they ended up finding the kid. It's a, it's a nine-year-old boy. His name was Ronan. And he was going to this concert with his grandfather, Stephen. And so all these local news channels and, and news affiliates, they're asking uh, the grandfather, Stephen, they're asking him questions about his grandson. And then he drops this bomb on him. He says this. He says, you want to know what's crazy about that night? He said, my grandson, Ronan, he's on the autistic spectrum and he's almost entirely nonverbal. He said, I can count on one hand the amount of times that he's ever spontaneously said anything about the way that he's feeling. And I tell you that for this reason. That's how God moves in your hopelessness, whether you know it or not. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you walk into a situation so hopeless that you've never spoken in your life. God is an and yet kind of God. When yeah. you walk with your hope in the Lord, you can walk in having never spoken in your life. And when you walk out on the other side of God's promises, you'll go, wow, yeah. that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. How, God? You could be in the midst of a hopeless season, but if you find the courage to put your hope in God again, you can walk out of a doctor's office with a bad diagnosis and say, and yet, my hope is in the Lord. You can be in the roughest part of your marriage and you can say, you know what? And yet, my hope is in the Lord. You could be walking through a season where you feel stuck and say, and yet, my hope is in the Lord. You could be walking out of a funeral and you could be saying, and yet... And yet, my hope is in the Lord. You see, I don't think we need more people that are chasing platform and trying to pry their way into influence and say that it's for the kingdom of God. I think we need more prayerful people that have their hope in the presence of God with expectation that the power of the Holy Spirit 
is going to move in their communities, in their circles, in their individual lives. See, here's the thing about Abraham that I love. Abraham didn't just have hope in the promise of God's word. So many of us, we just hope. We're just like, God, your word says that. Please, 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 God, make this happen. Come on, God. Abraham didn't just hope and say, man, I just hope. I don't know if he will, but I hope. It's not that kind of hope. Abraham hoped with the expectation that God is going to deliver on his promises and maybe more importantly, that God's not going to go back on his word. And God delivered. You want to know what's crazy about God's promises? He's still answering them. After it says that Abraham had hope and trust that God had the power to deliver on his promises, look at what it says in those last few verses we read. It says in verses 22 through 24, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words that was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us, for us, who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. You see, the greatest promise that God ever made is one that's woven throughout the scriptures. More than 300 prophecies and promises God makes in the Old Testament where he says, I am sending someone. I'm sending a king. I'm sending the Messiah. I'm sending a hero in the human story and his name is Jesus. And there is no greater hope that we have than in the hope that we have in Jesus. It's a hope where you can say against hope, Against all hope in the things that I'm going through in my life, it is in the hope that I have in Jesus Christ that I know there is more for me, there is better for me than that this is not where my story ends. Hey guys, Pastor Josh here. I pray that this message has encouraged you and that you would share this word with someone else. Thank you so much for checking it out. Yes, and be sure to follow along with us on social media throughout your week. Also, if you would like to give to this ministry and that has touched your heart in any way, you can do so at 3 and click on the Give tab. We'll see you soon.